Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. Welcome back to the Brain Mastery Podcast. Today's episode is going to be looking at the complexities of that term concussion from what underpins this term that we hear so broadly and widely in the media, in medical journals, in parent groups. It's kind of one of those things that seems to be everywhere. Is it a brain injury? Is it not a brain injury? Is it something totally independent of that? What's the difference between a concussion and a moderate or severe traumatic brain injury? Is a concussion something that some may argue is a neurological issue or is it simply a mental health issue? What's the relationship between those two things? Today's guest, he's coming back again, folks, by popular demand, Dr. Greg Oshanik from Richmond, Virginia, who's somebody who's a real specialist in the brain, not just in the neurology of the brain, but also how that relates to the overall functioning medically of each individual. So we're very excited to dig a little bit into this topic, to have a discussion about it, to have maybe a little bit of debate around this term and around what underpins what can be a rather complex diagnosis. And along with that can lead to a really challenging pathway towards care. So Greg, thanks again for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. So for the listeners out there, Greg's a humble guy, everybody listening. Okay. So Greg's going to say, oh, I don't know very much, but Greg's been around this work clinically for most of his career and is the professor emeritus of Brain Injury America. So he does understand brain injury at an extremely high level. And he's taught many a doctor on this particular area of medicine. So for the listener out there today, these could be people just looking to learn more, Greg. These could be practicing medical professionals. Why don't you unpack what makes this concussion term so challenging for people to better understand? You know, it's funny. Just the other day I was talking to somebody and I kind of realized that I have been working in the area of brain injury medicine for two thirds of my life, which kind of caught me by surprise. So to say that it's been a labor of love and a devotion is putting it mildly. So part of what is difficult is when we can't see something, we assume that it may be under somebody's voluntary control. If we think about mental illness, mm-hmm. behavior oftentimes is misinterpreted as being something that a person can control, right? You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, you're depressed, get out of bed, go do this, you know, buck up. It's the general Patton school of motivation. Yeah, exactly. And as we've learned, and as we now know, behavior is very complex. Behavior involves, yes, a bit of genetics, yes, a bit of environment, but the neurocircuitry And the neurochemistry, the neurophysiology is unmistakable. Mm -hmm. It it plays over into what happens when circuitry doesn't work properly. And when circuitry doesn't work properly, 
if it happens acutely, as in an abrupt impact to the head or some sort of shaking of the head, that disruption and the consequences of that disruption then become what we now call a traumatic brain injury. And based upon, as everybody knows, based upon certain parameters, gets declared mild, moderate, and severe. Mild, moderate, and severe relates to issues of outcome, relates to issues of, in the original days of Glasgow Coma Score, how likely was somebody to go back to their work in terms of a factory worker, in terms of a less sophisticated kind of return to work that did not require perhaps as much frontal lobe integration. Mm -hmm. So the ability to return and the criteria for that were a little more conservative than they are now. So first off, to go back to your question, I am of the opinion, and as most people are, that concussion and mild traumatic brain injury are interchangeable terms. So for people listening, please, please listen to what Dr. Oceanic Greg just said, because I hear this a lot and I am not a medical doctor, but Greg is, and he really understands this work. What Greg just said is essentially an MTBI, mild traumatic brain injury, and a concussion are pretty much the same thing. Okay. So that's kind of lesson number one. Okay. Please, please take that home. Because a lot of people that I speak with, and Greg knows this, I'm kind of like the safety person for all my kids' sports teams and stuff because of my work in this field. And please, please understand that's step number one for the people who are out there just looking to learn more from a real specialist here. Those two terms, use them interchangeably. Sorry, Greg, continue. Thank you. So the basis of saying that is what we know in terms of the pathology. Mm -hmm. We've got animal data in terms of injury. And some of the animal data goes back to the 80s and 70s when, for various reasons, we were able to use monkeys and primates and chimps in studies that we now ethically can't. But nonetheless, we can't throw away that information. Right. And so the way that we can, we use that information as well as some evidence that has developed accidentally, if you will, mm -hmm. individuals who have had a concussion slash mild traumatic brain injury and died of something very quickly after that, that was not brain related and then have gone to autopsy yep. and we have the opportunity to look at their brain under the microscope. And we discover the same kind of pathological changes, the same kind of diffuse axonal injury, not of the same breadth, not of the same extension as we see in moderate and severe, but certainly the same nature of that traumatic axonal disruption as the underlying pathophysiology. And so we've got that primary industry standard, the gold standard of the neuropath change seen by the neuropathologist as evidence perfect that this is what has occurred. We also have some situations that came out of UCLA Brain Center, Dr. David Hovda and his group years ago, where they were doing PET studies. 
And there were PET studies of severe traumatic brain injury. And PET, for those who don't know, is a way of using a radioactive labeled sugar molecule, glucose. And glucose is one of the, the things that the brain uses for energy. We used to think it was the only thing, but it's just one of the things now. So as the brain cell takes up the glucose molecule, it breaks it down and the radioactive particles released. Well, at the time that it's occurring, the individual's head is lying in a circle of Geiger counters. And as that particle is released, there's a very complicated mathematical formula that allows that to be translated into an image. And so what you see is an area where there's a traumatic brain injury and a damaged nerve cell, damaged brain cell, a decrease in uptake and a decrease in metabolism. And what Dr. Havda and his group stumbled into was that in a mild traumatic brain injury, in a concussive injury, in a sports individual that happened to come into their clinic, his PET scan within 30 days of his injury looked as bad as a severe trait injury, metabolic dysfunction. So we have that information to know that the underlying difference is physiologic. The underlying difference is clear. And then we fast forward to now, and we're looking at other types of biomarkers. We're looking at ways of checking blood levels of mm. things like NFL or yeah. SPD or other types of biomarkers that allow us to measure when the brain has broken down and you have had a release of chemicals that should normally be in the brain, but now we're floating free in the periphery that gives us another piece of information that the tissue has been damaged. So there's all sorts of lines of information uh, that this occurs. Now it's a continuum, right? On the one end are the individuals that succumb to this type of trauma and they, they die from it. Other end are individuals who have a, an impact or some other kind of acceleration, deceleration to their brain. And there's a very brief, minimal, if at all, kind of awareness of a neurologic change. The vast majority of those folks have no further symptoms. The subconcussive things have no further symptoms with one event. But what we're concerned about now is the multiplicity of subconcussive events and how those things may build upon one another and one another and one another. So Quick question. This is really, really useful. And I think, you know, you're getting a master class in neurophysiology and concussion here. So thank you again, Greg, for sharing this. But when I first started getting more involved in some of this work and I was reading from other physicians in this space, and it gave me maybe a sense of hope, maybe a little bit that with these concussion injuries, it's primarily anxiety, primarily a psychological issue. If it becomes more long-term, it's mainly just for lack of a better term, it's kind of, it's psychological. It's kind of between your ears, not neurological, but psychological. And what do you think about that? Because obviously I'm simplifying here, Greg, but that seems to be, you know, for some sort of a perspective that's out there fairly wide range. And I don't know what your thoughts are around that. Not to be glib, but when I get a head cold, 
it has an emotional psychological impact upon me because it changes my ability to function. Mm-hmm. Anytime there is something that changes our course, our trajectory from what we as self-determining beings desire to go, it generates stress. It generates a point of discomfort. That point of discomfort then results in some sort of response. And from that stimulus, we have to cope with that change. How we cope with that change, whether you want to call them defense mechanisms, you want to call them learned behaviors, whatever, all come down to those types of adaptations that we as a human being make in terms of the face of environmental stress, environmental change. Doesn't matter whether that change is a concussion or a cold or COVID or a fractured leg or a total knee replacement or coronary artery bypass surgery, those kinds of things. In fact, if you take something like the literature And part of my career path has also been providing consultation to cardiac patients and things Mm -hmm. of that shape. If you take the literature on outcomes for patients who have depression before they start their cardiac surgery, before coronary artery bypass surgery, or outcomes for individuals who have depression before they have their total knee or before they have their total hip, depression before is a factor for a poor surgical outcome, increased length of stay, increased infection, increased complication rate. And so that factor and that adaptation or maladaptation impacts something that has nothing to do with the brain whatsoever, to do with cardiac issue. It has to do with a, an orthopedic issue. Mm-hmm. So should it be too much of a surprise that some sort of response, be it anxiety, be it depression, to an event that impacts the most important organ of our body that controls virtually everything, that a change in that would result in some sort of an emotional reaction, and that too would have an impact to our outcome. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when you hear, though, I mean, there's, there's a couple of people I've met over my time who would argue, like, let's say in a complex return to work type case, that it seems that most of these cases are result of, and maybe they were, maybe they had pre, pre-concussion, pre-baseline concussion mental health. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they didn't have access to those data. But when, you know, I struggle with personally, because of my experience with this and working in this space for a while now, that in most cases, there are going to be, yes, uh, some aspects of mental health for sure. But in many cases, especially as you're hinting at in the more prolonged cases that are post-acute, there is likely some actual neurological problems there as well. And also, I think a lot of it, Mark, has to do with the shaping of behavior that occurs in the early days after the event. One of the things that the Brain Injury Association of America has always been about has been education. Mm -hmm. And part of that advocacy and education mission is because the belief that 
if patients are educated about what is going on with their disorder, it's been proven true in diabetes or hypertension or arthritis or whatever, if they are educated, the locus of control being central, there is less difficulty going on. Part of the problem though is that education oftentimes happens too late in the process or it's offered in a format that isn't readily available, isn't readily usable to the patient. I'll give you an example. You go in, you've had an injury, you go into the emergency department. They check you out and you got about a 50-50 chance that they're going to say, yeah, you had a concussion. They then give you, quote, the concussion sheet. And there's a whole list of things on there that you're supposed to read and understand. Well, if you've got a concussion, first off, your ability to read is going to be diminished. Mm -hmm. Secondly, as you're reading, you're going to get a headache. Thirdly, your ability to incorporate and process that information is going to be impacted. So being given a sheet of paper is not going to be really all that helpful in that acute phase. As you then, over the next several days, start having difficulty with double vision because of convergence insufficiency or double vision because you've got loss of binocularity in terms of your vision, or that you've got difficulty with being able to tolerate crowded environments because you have a vestibular problem that you are now visually dependent. And so anytime somebody cuts through your line of sight and what's anchoring you, you become apprehensive because you feel like you're going to fall and then you escape and you feel better. You as an organism are going to misattribute all of those things to an intrinsic anxiety disorder because that's what you know. And in a situation where you misattribute it, but yet you leave that environment and you feel better, you've got a learning Pavlovian conditioned response that automatically teaches you, oh, I just, I just came up with the right answer. Well, here's a question I have for you as you're on this awesome, awesome topic. So when you talk about education, and I couldn't agree more, especially for the patient to be more informed. When you hear, like, let's say the information I get, I go to the emergency room, I get my sheet, right? And take whatever it is, you know, oftentimes the return to work is give yourself two weeks, no symptoms, then slowly dial it in. If you experience symptoms, you go back to step one again. You need to repeat that same process, right? Before stimulating too hard. But if my education process, I've gone through, let's say two months of this, and then once we're kind of as some and I don't want to be unkind or anything, but in some, because maybe it's a lack of education, maybe it's a lack of information, or maybe it's just a difference of opinion. But in some, what you're here, once you are a more post-acute patient without significant evidence in more traditional accessible imaging, it is sometimes deemed a mental health issue and no longer a neurological issue. And just because we can't see it in a certain technology that we have available to us at that time, I believe, and you can challenge me on this, I'm open. I believe that surely in many of those cases, we need to not discredit the possibility that it's still a neurological issue. I am 100% on board with that. Actually, 200% on board. 
you know, technology is is a tool. Before we had CT scans, which was when I started medical school, you made diagnoses of this nature by history, right? By your examination, you trusted the patient. There wasn't this right. Whole this whole environment of worrying that the patient was going to lie to you, that there was some malevolence in the patient intrinsically, and they were trying to get something over on you. Right. And that every patient that complained of an injury that didn't get better somehow had an ulterior motive. There was secondary gain that was involved. Sure. There were some people like that, Mm -hmm. but it was not representative of the vast majority of people that you encountered. I find it really hard to believe that between 1973, when I started medical school and 2021, 2022, our environment has changed so much that the population of the world has become so dishonest. So I think there's been a shift in terms of why shift is that there's been less time devoted to spending time listening to the patient, Mm -hmm. less time devoted to interacting with the patient, less time devoted to observing the patient for consistencies or inconsistencies. And so instead people have moved on to some sort of a statistical analysis and look at the bell-shaped curve. And if you fall off the bell-shaped curve and one end or the other, then obviously, obviously statistics don't lie. Yeah, we know that. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. Yeah. So in this situation, you have people who fall between the cracks because all of us, all of us have things in our past that caused us sadness. And there are pathways in our brains that exist because of those experiences. We have another experience in as a result of binocular dysfunction with our eyes or convergence insufficiency or vestibular issues. Mm-hmm. The alarm bell goes off or PTSD. The alarm bell goes For off. Sure. Neurons that fire together, fire together. Those pathways become more definitive. Well, I love that. And that's so good. And what I'm makes me think to add on to that comment, I choose to look at this whole concept and this debate as an opportunity for education. Because, you know, one of my mentors who we talk about, Barbara Aerosmith-Young, you know, she founded this program that's behavioral in nature that I'm a big fan of. And I'm a little bit biased, right? Because I'm, I'm involved with it and I love it. But it kind of looks to provide an option to exhaust behavioral neuroplastic opportunity for change. And it's interesting because unfortunately, it's still relatively small and not very well known. And programs like it, I'm sure, are out there as well that just aren't very well known. So what we try to do through conversations like this and education is to, to make those listening that hear this message aware that more options could be available. Because one of the things, Greg, that really connects you and me, you and I, when we have these these conversations, is more information, more readily available. When we first started the research in this particular topic, you know, my curiosity around concussion started with my own. And comparing this active rehab we see in a lot of your work 
as a medical doctor, especially on the orthopedic physical side, and then trying to better understand and inform that practice on more the cognitive side. And when we approached the faculty of medicine at the University of British Columbia, they were interested in the question, or maybe we were just really tenacious. I don't know, Greg, probably a little bit of both. But when we approached another university in the United States on the West Coast, who I won't, I'm not going to name here, but they weren't interested. They mm-hmm. kind of said, you know, people with post-acute, I don't think they're going to nah, keep me posted, though. Keep me posted. But, you know, eh. well, this is the thing that really worries me about that mindset is that's closed. And in a university, they're built, I believe. Now, again, I'm an optimist, Greg, so laugh at me, please. It, it's, it's allowed. I'm an optimist, and I choose to believe that most people who get into becoming a professor, or researcher, they're driven by inquiry each day and trying to understand how to better treat something on a given day. And to be closed before even looking at what you're saying no to, I think is a really dangerous, dangerous thing. And I don't know if you want to add anything to that, but that's something that fuels me kind of every day, Greg. Part of it has to do with the effort involved. And what some people sadly feel the relative value of the life that they are going to change. And sadly, in, the, in this country, for way too long, individuals that are neuroatypical have been undervalued. And their needs, their opportunities, things for them to change and to maximize their potential have not been strongly supported. Federal funding has been abysmal over the years for that. And so when we look at some of that societal attitudinal issues, there is a stark difference between you north of the border and us. When I went to the American Congress of Rehab Medicine meeting back in 2014 in Toronto, and I went to the museum up there, I was, I was so emotional seeing clothing that was designed for people who had disabilities, seeing things there that were talking about adaptive housing in museums, things that were out in public among kind of neurotypical people. We wouldn't see that down here. Such a different, different attitude, different environment. So I think part of what you ran across Mm was a little bit of a culture issue. For sure. I think you're right. And I think it's also, the only thing that really struck me is I respect that kind of opinion as well. It's just, and maybe it wasn't explained very well by me, right? That you know me, sometimes I can get excited. We approached that same group recently and obviously more interested now because it did, as you know, the first kind of study did yield peer-reviewed publication, albeit small and pilot data, but still interesting. What it's all about is being, you know, providing options and options are very important to make available to people in order to maybe question one's current bias based on the previous data that we were exposed to and then be aware of what the new outcomes could be. And then from that, help us to better inform our practice. 100% agree that the issue of needing to have options, needing to have variability I mean, all you have to do is go into any coffee shop or any ice cream shop 
you don't just get vanilla. There's 32 different flavors. People want choice. People have different mm-hmm. needs and buyers. And that's just in terms of flavor. And there's different price points too. I mean, because again, there's different means that people have and different means at different times that people have. And that needs to be recognized. Not everybody can afford or has resources to get all of the things that they want at any point in time. So you need to figure out how do you stagger those? How do you stack mm-hmm. a way that is still meaningful, that still allows them to get the best value, the best value for the time and the, and the, and the resources that they're committing? And that's where it's critical to have things that are definitely proven, definitely are efficiently provided. There's metrics to track the efficiency and the progress Mm -hmm. is moving forward. And so part of the difficulty has been that medicine in a lot of ways has not had that kind of precision. We've been a little lackluster in that. And that's fair. Yeah, Yeah, that's very fair. Well, I think it's been something we brought onto ourselves. Now, to the issue of solely relegating mild TBI concussive injury into a mental health domain, are there cases where the residual changes for somebody from their concussion, mild TBI, is in a mental health domain? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the brain is the organ of the mind. Mm-hmm. Depression is four to five, four to six times more likely in the first five years after injury. Neuroendocrine problems happen 23% of individuals with mild TBI. So it's not a surprise. And neuroendocrine problems cause depression. It's not a surprise that you can see neuropsychiatric, neurobehavioral problems arising as a consequence. Is it that everything relates? No. Are there other subtle things that if you look with a fine enough microscope, fine enough instrument that you're going to find? If you go in and you just look at somebody through the window, are you going to be able to tell that they've got a mild TBI if they're acting strangely? No. If you go in and you see, just watch them walk around, are you going to be able to tell if they've got a balance disorder? No. If you just have them stand there with their eyes open, are you going to be able to tell that? No. If you have them close their eyes, are you going to be able to tell that? In some of them, yes. If you narrow their base Mm -hmm. of support with their eyes closed, are you going to be able to tell that? More. If you (laughs) close their eyes, put their arms out and march in place for 60 seconds to see if they rotate right or left, are you going to find even more in a dynamic sense? You bet your sweet bippy. It's a matter of progressing in terms of how you are doing things to more dynamic testing, to more multitasking, to refining what you are doing, to look at those domains that we know trigger anxiety, those kinds of things. You can't cheat. And with all due respect, Mm -hmm. you're a non-physician. You're not trained in that. If you're a non-physician, you can't do lab tests. You don't generally put your hands on somebody and do a physical examination. That's what you're trained to do. So in a situation where non-physicians are examining a patient with a concussion mild TBI, you are not getting the complete story. What would your message be 
to let's say it is a physician and let's say their perspective at this current time is that I still think it's just a mental health. Like, honestly, if it's imaging, from what I could tell, let's say it's CT and it's negative for any, you know, serious issue that we can see in any of the lobes, it's a mental health issue, Greg. Like, come on, let's just keep it real here. You know, let's call it as it is. What it is, we need to treat this just like we treat anxiety, just like we treat depression. And it could be, Greg, that pre-fall, pre-MBA, maybe you did have depression, which is even stronger for my argument because it, you know, exacerbated um, that pre-existing condition. What would your statement be to that? If I'm on the other side, Greg, you know, thank you for all that. And I appreciate it. However, you're not convincing me. I still think when they're prolonged, these individuals are, it's uh, 90% of the time, Greg, a mental health, 95% of the time. It seems to just be a persisting mental health condition, and we should treat it just as that. What's interesting about that argument is if you go back to Kinnear Wilson back in the 30s in terms of his neurology textbook, or you go back into Hewlings Jackson's writing in terms of various types of seizure issues, what you will find are an abundance of examples where technology didn't demonstrate anything at the state of the art at that point. And autopsy studies then showed abnormalities in those areas that the clinical evaluation of a well-trained clinician and the history of the patient was able to discern. Fast forward to the time where we have more precise neuroimaging above the two millimeter resolution, correction, the two centimeter resolution of a CT down to a 0.5 millimeter resolution of your three Tesla MRI. So you have far greater magnification. Now, argument can be are those things that you find really clinically significant? Because we know when you do an MRI of somebody's back, you're going to find a lot of discs that are protruding and they have no clinical significance. Mm -hmm. If the pattern of the abnormalities in the brain just happened to correlate with what we know in terms of regional activity and regional responsibility for certain types of networks and things of that nature, it's kind of difficult to argue that there's not an association, especially onset of something. So I think you look back at what the science and the large research and the large body of neurological neurobehavioral literature from men that had no ax to grind. There was no third party insurance. There was no workers comp. There was no plaintiff and defense bar. There was nothing of that nature. They were just men of science. And that's what they demonstrated by that type of meticulous attention to detail. Perfect. That's great. That's great. That's, that's really useful. I think, and I think will really help. I think it's really important with anything to, you know, understand your biases maybe before, like at any good academic conference, we kind of get up there and say, okay, here's my biases, right? (laughs) Here's my conflicts of interest. And then we start, we kind of go from there. One little piece I want to share. I know it's getting late there, but one piece for context I want to share was I remember when we had the opportunity to get involved with some research And Sean Porter, who you've got to know over time, too, is a neuroscientist who I've worked with a bit. 
he utilized a technology that I was not that familiar with at that time. And actually was a little bit skeptical of like to be full disclosure, it was EEG because it's so accessible. You hear so much about it, but when correlated with another measure like uh, NIH neuropsychological uh, battery, it can be pretty interesting. And something when we think about, let's say concussion, the first group, as you know, that we worked and studied more of this kind of complex, mild MTBI population with a little bit of, you know, moderate and severe TBI with yes, some reported challenges with mental health, but also reported significant cognitive symptom presentation. And what I found really interesting further to this conversation was that at baseline, there was really kind of like this, yes, many validated cognitive challenges, but also hyperconnectivity in the prefrontal cortex. And at the three-month mark, more functional connectivity in the prefrontal cortex, more organized connections, which also correlated with better cognitive function, fluid reasoning, and less anxiety and depression. Meaning, I believe, a cognitive issue was present. And through behavioral, safe behavioral treatment, one could experience a better overall quality of life. And I thought that like, it's still, it's all about the science for me. It's just all about the science. I mean, yes, full disclosure, I'm involved with this company and I love it. But what was fascinating was the science spoke, not us. Now we're trying to listen better. We're trying to continue to inform the science to listen better so we can do more good. But I think that's a great example of exactly what kind of what you're saying is that it can be complex. It is complex, <laughs> but if you're measuring properly, and if you're measuring qualitatively and quantitatively, look at what the data is telling you. It's a simple matter of not being afraid of where it leads you. Yeah, I love that. If you're afraid of where it leads you, if you're afraid that it's going to lead you someplace that is either going to destroy whatever the product is that you're building or whatever therapy is that you're promoting or that it is going to cost you more money because, gosh, this person really is injured and now we are really responsible for taking care of this person the way we should and making them whole again by providing coverage, you've got to be aware that that's the risk and you've got to be willing to accept that. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Well, Greg, this has been a wonderful conversation. I want to thank you again for your time. And I'm hoping I'm positive everybody, you know, was able to learn today, but also I hope for some of us, it helped us to ask ourselves some questions about how we're viewing concussion and what biases do we currently have around that? Maybe we have a loved one that's been struggling and we've thought it's all just a mental health thing. Maybe there's more to that case. And maybe I could deploy a little bit more compassion towards them and a bit more appreciation, or maybe we can reach out to another medical professional thinking, maybe there's more to it than I thought. And I think that's a really wonderful thing. And that's something that we're trying to do here through this platform is share information so people can, can learn more from some of the real leaders out there like Greg or Dr. Oshanik. Greg's a friend, so I call him Greg, but Dr. Oshanik can shed some light onto these issues that yes, are complex, but there are solutions available out there. Greg's seen it throughout his practice in multiple conditions that by asking the right questions, by running the right tests and continuing to ask questions, we can start to lead ourselves towards better care, more options for people. So thank you again for doing all that you do, Greg. 
You're very welcome. It's been my honor to work in this space, and it's been an honor to to have you in this space with me and to to make our friendship and our professional relationship. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Well, thanks again, and we'll see you all in the next episode. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to the Brain Mastery Podcast. We're super grateful for the community of supporters of this podcast. Again, this podcast was designed with an intention and an objective, and that was to share stories of rehabilitation, of recovery from brain injury, to really interview some of the leaders out there to provide more hope to community members. So thank you again for all of the support with that. If this episode resonated for you and had value for you, we just ask, please download and share it. Please also, if you wouldn't mind, rate the podcast. Those ratings really matter and help us to spread the message. If you're a clinical provider out there, meaning a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or somebody who just works with people with brain injury and want to learn more about the BEARS platform, we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to do so. Just go to www.abiwellness.com to learn more about how to get involved. Uh, Training is very accessible and we've tried to make it very, very easy for people to get access to this neurorehabilitation platform. Thank you again for your support and we'll see you on the next episode. The statements made regarding the Bears platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of the Bears platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The Bears platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice.